welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, our 109th episode. And as always, if you ever have any questions or comments for us, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them in the comments section of Podbean, which is, um, you know, our primary carrier for the podcast. So, the, hey, there's a lot of wood to chop out there. A lot of things been happening the last couple of weeks. Some are gun-related, some are big news stories, and some are just peripherally gun-related. So, let's just start with the uh, ugly the ugly duckling, and that is Afghanistan. We have just suffered a humiliating and really complete defeat in Afghanistan. After 20 years of supporting this puppet government that can't seem to do anything right. Uh, we just had to pull out and say, hey, it's, it's over. It's done. Um, unfortunately, that's handing back a country to the Taliban, which everybody thinks is a bad idea. A very bad idea. So I, I just sit there and I go, well, you know, what, what possible outcome could there be? We always seem to be very, very good at getting in there and just trouncing on the bad guys, but we seem to never have a really good exit strategy. And we didn't have a good one in Iraq, but we had better success there. So, you know, Iraq is basically a success. Afghanistan has been a failure, abject failure, and no one's being held accountable. Um, we have a lot of people wearing stars on our shoulders on their shoulders, I should say, in the military who are, you know, hey, they were the commander in Afghanistan for a year or year and a half. Then they pass the hot potato to somebody else. So, you know, there just wasn't a General Patton. There wasn't a General Eisenhower, somebody who's there for the duration and says, hey, we're going to kick these people's butts. Um, and, and we kept getting these rosy forecasts like, hey, it's about ready to turn the corner or the Afghans are getting more and more capable every day. You know, all that was propaganda and it was BS. And we spent billions of dollars. And the worst part is we've lost ungodly numbers of people just to stabilize Afghanistan. The only the only reasonable exit strategy that, that appears to me is it should have become and I've, I've said this before, a UN mandate. There's a UN force in there that keeps the peace. There's some kind of little BS government. And you just keep a lid on the place. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. There are certain things that you cannot fix. There are certain people who are just ungovernable. And I think we found a, uh, a whole country full of them in Afghanistan. Oh, this is, this is awesome. You know, Oh God! I don't even can't. Andrew Cuomo. I keep wanting to call him Mario Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo is a thug, a bully. He's been linked to the mob. I don't know if that's true. I tend to doubt it, but he's been linked there anyway. Um, a political hack, an opportunist, a liar, a woman abuser. This guy. There's nothing. Even people in his own party can't find anything anything nice to say about him and so finally he's been forced out of office and the worst part is he's been forced out for really not the reasons he should have been forced out uh he was responsible for 
for the stupidest decision. Any anybody above, well, even a, even a grade school kid would say, "Don't take sick people and put them in with old people." When we know that old people are much more susceptible to sickness, yet he did that with the COVID thing. Oh, I need the beds. Well, sorry, there that you would have had to make other arrangements. You exposed our most vulnerable population to a deadly disease because of a decision he made. And that's what he should be getting fried for. And he should actually be going to jail for that. That is stupidity and criminal negligence that's just too too great to ignore. Instead, he's getting it because he's getting out because like all of these politicians, like many of these people, his ego is so big that he thinks that uh, he can do anything. And if he sees a young, good-looking girl, he goes up there and tries to feel their butts or feel other parts of their anatomy or give them a big kiss on the lips. Because this guy is just out there using his office to put moves on women. That's what he's doing. I mean, when you have 11 women come forward, and for every one that comes forward, I'm, I'm thinking there's at least one that doesn't, maybe two. So you're probably talking 20 to 30 women that this guy's approached over, say, 10 years. That's a, that's a big amount. I mean, that is not a <laughs> insignificant amount. You break that down, that's, that's at least two or three women a year that he's been groping, trying to get, get uh, some sort of, you know, thing off of. And, and these are not women who are around his age or even close. These are all women who are. 30 and maybe even 40 years younger than he is. I mean, this is a this is a disgusting old man. He is a disgusting dude. And I hope he's the last of the Cuomos. Um, his his little brother, little Fredo Cuomo, you know, he's he's a little he's obviously a liar, a hack, and a punk. And I notice he's been kind of chased off of CNN a little bit. We'll see if he comes back, but I hope they're both finished. And if it takes the Me Too thing to do it, so much the better. Speaking speaking of another wonderful political figure, that great appointment that uh, old sleepy Joe Biden, or who's ever controlling him and his meds, made this uh, Chipman guy. I don't know. I don't even know his first name. He's just he he's so dis, he's so revolting and evil and disgusting that um, I, I don't even I don't even like looking at his picture but anyway this Chipman guy turns out that not only you know does he have a spotted past with this Waco thing was he just worked for every gun control activist group in the in the country was a jerk as a special agent now we we also know he was a racist a racist jerk party hack who's who's really stupid too if you've ever seen him speak he's 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 an absolute moron and he's just got that look on his face like you know he's he's the kid in school who nobody would like he just has that creepy horrid look about him and uh you know i think it's i think it's just a it it shines his it, that's his personality shining through so anyway i think he's done because the one thing you cannot survive is a accusation of being a racist. So, and apparently, he picked out a black agent and said, "Hey, this guy, you know, 
he's he's too smart he did too well on his test and this guy had to put up with like two years of investigations to make sure he didn't cheat and it turns out he was clean as a whistle this was just chipman being a racist just being a racist which is completely unacceptable and do we really want somebody like that anywhere near the ATF or anywhere near government? And I would say no. Okay, then we go to another, one of the awesome things, the Jokio Olympics. You know, nobody really cares about the Olympics anymore. That that really became kind of a a uh, thing with me that, you know, they, they, they hype it all up. But it's been over with for, well, less than a week and everybody's forgotten about it. Everybody's like, yeah, so what? But the thing about it is it exposed really what the Olympics have become, which is really an ugly, you know, why would you even waste any time on it? And, and the answer is I will probably never waste any time on it ever again. But here are just some observations from the Jokio Olympics. First of all, the International Olympic Committee, whoever and whatever they are, they don't really administer the Olympics. They administer the Olympic cheating. And it's become just institutionalized that countries cheat. They find any way around the rules to cheat. And, you know, if there's anything counter to what should be the Olympic spirit, that's it. You know, cheating in the Olympics should not be something that, uh, that, is even mentioned together but it is but it is and it's the drug testing they do all this other nonsense the cheating the cheating is out there and they regulate the cheating that's what they do then you have countries and my favorite is the communist chinese you know they actually in my in my view before we get to the communist chinese in my view the olympics would be a simple opening ceremony where we play nice music and and the athletes are all in the same uniform but they march behind their flag and that would be the opening that would be the opening ceremony closing ceremony would be kind of the same thing they would all kind of compete you know in the same sort of uniform and and it'd be okay if you like the the uh shot putter from jamaica and you're rooting for him that's okay because we're not going to do medal counts and one country isn't better than another because they have more medals and all the rest of it. And big countries always get a haul and small countries kind of get the crumbs, you know. So all of that would be all of that would be gone. And maybe your favorite, maybe your favorite uh, long distance runner is from Kenya. Maybe your favorite uh, um, pole vaulter is from Finland. Maybe your favorite somebody else is from the United States, you know. And you wouldn't have any of this nonsense. And we would also kind of pare back. I, I don't know that we need surfing in the Olympics and synchronized swimming and all this other stuff. Uh, I, I would kind of pare it back to something a little little simpler and maybe a little more traditional. Maybe we don't need baseball in the Olympics or softball in the Olympics. And I would certainly, with the World Cup and everything else, hey, there needs to be no soccer in the Olympics. Sorry. Olympic soccer stupid. Olympic basketball is pretty stupid too because basketball is kind of a winter game and yet we play it in the Summer Olympics. So all that would go and that's that's kind of what it would be. It'd kind of be a nice 
just it, it just kind of about athletes doing well and all that but but oh no we can't have that we can't have that for decades it was polarized around the cold war you know you know can we win more medals than the commies and everybody was you know into that so we got into this medal count business and apparently for most of the games the chinese were exceptionally upset because the united states had won more medals than they had and it was coming out on some counts as being the number one in medals whereas the chinese actually had more gold medals and that's another way of counting it too so it depends do you count total medals where a medal is a medal is a medal or do you count it as gold medals are weighed a lot more so the most gold medals means you should be at the top of the medal count even though the overall medal count you don't have it somebody else has more overall so the Chinese the great sportsmen they were were all upset about that and of course I just you know I'm not into the medal count but I did laugh on the last day when of course the USA noses out China and we get 39 gold medals and they have 38 so now they can't complain about anything because no matter how you count the medals we're on top and they're not so uh, we'll see what happens <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny yeah the Chinese be careful about complaining about things before the games are over but you know once the games are over it's done and and I mean you know fortunately we won't have to look at those filthy disgusting soccer women's soccer players anymore the the ones from the USA that everybody including myself was actively rooting against you know because of the disrespect they show to the flag and the anthem so we don't need any of that anymore that's just that's just awful um okay and then you get to the the strange case of simone biles who you know i i don't really know i haven't made up my mind on this the jury is still out i suspect that she is a person who had unrealistic expectations placed on her i mean she was expected to win five or six gold medals that's that's a pretty tall order that's a pretty tall amount you know um that's that's those are big expectations and i don't know anybody could could live up to that the other thing is was she just burned out in uh, the the training regimen the expectations and everything else she may have been exhausted when she got there and just couldn't couldn't handle it you know she was just burned out we'll we'll see obviously if they think she no longer has an olympic future they're going to do what the olympics do which is they're going to they're going to cut her loose so she'll announce her retirement in the next few months six months maybe then she'll go on oprah robin roberts or dr phil and she's going to tell her story and it'll be interesting to see what her truth is because if it's hey you know they expected too much of me they put way too much pressure on me and they were overtraining me and i just couldn't do it then i'll, I'll think that's pretty pretty honest and pretty fair if it if i hear the words systemic racism i was treated that way because i was black uh you know all this kind of stuff if any of that kind of comes out then i'll know that this is just another pampered whiner who you know she could uh, join prince harry's royal family because they whine he's the biggest one he if if whining was an olympic sport 
uh, Prince Harry would be a platinum medal winner. They wouldn't even have gold medal. They would have platinum medal for him. He is the biggest whiner I have ever seen. But that's getting off the point. We'll see what her truth is. We'll see what her truth is. And that brings me to, I have never really known a lot of Olympians. I've known a couple, uh, introduced to a couple, kind of acquainted with them. And it was all through shooting. All, all through shooting, nothing else. Don't know any shot putters or hammer throwers or or javelin throwers. I don't think they do that anymore, but maybe they do. Um, so it's just shooters. Um, the first guy was a wannabe who thought he was just super hot. And he was at our, I was a member of the same shooting club he was. He was a small bore pistol guy. And uh, he was awesome. He, he could shoot some awesome scores. But, you know, he didn't have it. He, he just he just was not going to be mentally tough enough I mean he could kick the snot out of the rest of us but if he were shooting against people of equal talent or near equal talent or even superior talent he he wasn't gonna he wasn't mentally tough enough to to, to take it from him to, to get up for it and, and do it he just didn't have the mindset so he was never gonna go anyplace the next guy I knew was a, um, he was, I was, knew him in the army. He was an infantry officer. He was, he was the company commander and I was the executive officer of a rifle company. And um, he had been a national champion pistol shot at West Point. He was a West Point guy. He, he'd gone to the, the national championships at Camp Perry and won pistol. And there was there was a lot of recruitment where they wanted him to be at the AMU or the Army Marksmanship Unit or at the Olympic thing where he could go there and he could shoot and he refused it he just said nope I'm not doing it that would compromise my career as a military officer so he didn't do it and he had the talent to do it but um, he, he chose not to the other two guys I knew were military guys they were both officers, and you wonder, you wonder, why do military officers wind up on AMU shooting on these teams, rather than being, rather than doing what we pay military officers to do, which is lead troops and and make decisions and and be in charge of things? How do they wind up? How do they wind up in the AMU just being shooting royalty and and uh, and doing that? Well, the answer is quite simple. Uh, a lot of these, if you're the AMU, you've got two sources of people. Um, the people you just bring in, the PA, the private first class, and the guy who may have made uh, corporal or, or specialist, as we uh, that's the equal rank to that. Uh, they they're just kind of out of high school, so they don't have the competitive experience, even if they are great shots. It's going to take them some years to get the competitive experience, and they'll make that investment. But they also have to have people who are really good kind of coming out of the starting blocks and that's where a lot of officers come in you notice there was one uh, female first lieutenant won the uh, uh, gold medal in trap shooting and and she probably was a national competitor um, when she was in college you get these guys and gals who are officers who've been shooting in college and guess what they already have national championship tournament experience they're a proven quantity. They know how talented they are. They've operated under that pressure and in a training regimen. And, you know, so they, they're pretty much, 
miles ahead of somebody who just comes in and maybe is a phenomenal shot but doesn't really know anything about shooting in tournaments or prepping for tournaments or the mindset or you know the the training that goes along with it all, all those things that have that are now incorporated in it so that's how officers get there the first guy I knew and I'll give it I can give his full name he's unfortunately deceased but his name was Lana's Wigger Lana's Wigger and um, he's starting from the early 60s up in through the 80s uh, he was he was the main man at the Army Marksmanship Unit and he won a couple of gold medals and a couple of silver medals in the Olympics and and scads of gold and silver medals at all these other you know world championship this and that and the other thing he's also a Vietnam veteran and that's remember he kind of like Carlos Hathcock who'd been a, uh, a match shooter some of these match shooters went over to Vietnam and they they functioned as snipers I think Lana's Wigger ran a sniper school so he was a, he was you know he he did his deal he was overseas doing his thing when I was introduced to Wigger and I just met him and he was just a nice guy uh, he was at the end of his kind of at the end of his competitive career but he was going to be around for for a while certainly as a trainer and uh, of the story about him was he he was a if you know anything about the military if, if you serve in officer ranks you're allowed to retire at 20 years and as a matter of fact you have to retire at 20 years at the rank of major um, and if you want to serve longer you need to be promoted to lieutenant colonel so you can be there longer well Wigger was a major and you know he when he started hitting getting close to that 20 year mark he started to uh, prepare for retirement and when his chain of command found out they called the chief of staff of the army the head general of the army and they convened a special promotion board for him which he was the only man considered and the only man selected for promotion so they could keep him around and he didn't have to retire and leave that that's very special treatment in the military that's unheard of special treatment okay and that happens when you're shooting royalty you know your royalty that's that's it um the next guy i knew was a guy who was a contemporary of mine and we'll just call him glenn and glenn um he was he was shooting royalty he went to the olympics over his career he spent 20 years in and was allowed to retire as a captain which again was extraordinary because most captains are forced out and not allowed to retire but he was allowed to retire as a captain he went to the olympics uh, probably four times maybe four or five times and you know didn't win anything is just no medals no nothing but he won a whole bunch of stuff in, and again all these international things that we ne you never hear of you know the international upside down 10 meter air rifle running bore competition in fog whatever whatever all that nonsense is and so they have all that international stuff where they have goofy guns and they have goofy shooting clothes and all that and you know it, and it's a big recruiting thing it's it's a big feather in the army's cap when one of their shooters takes home some of that stuff so those guys were very successful as shooting royalty but i can tell you glenn i went to the infantry officer advance course with him and he didn't know anything about his craft 
as an infantry officer. So de facto, he was no longer an officer. He was getting paid as one, getting treated as one, but he didn't have the experience or the capability to function as one. So, you know, that's, that's my brush with the Olympics. It's also a reason that I've never really wanted to go to uh, Camp Perry. And I think they do a bunch of it at Camp Atterbury now, which is in Indiana. I really resented shooting against these subsidized shooters. I mean, I really resented that. Now, I was never good enough. I was never the square root good enough <laughs> to to go to AMU or anything like that. But, um, you know, when you're paying for your own... When you're paying for your own ammo, doing your own hand-loading... And you're saving up to buy your own rifle you tend to not like these guys who walk in and they have custom-made equipment everything they have is fitted to them including the rifles there's a, a a whole shop of gunsmiths who who keep their rifles in good shape for them I doubt if these guys even clean them I don't I've never asked but I I doubt they even clean their own rifles um, and then they go out to ranges and you know they're they, they're assigned to some nebulous headquarters somewhere but their place of duty is at the amu and they do you know they do all their their uh, physical training they have all of the access to the sports psychologists and all these master fitness trainers and and when they go out there's people running the range for them their stuff's all laid out it's it's shooting royalty and uh it's it's I guess it's a pretty good life, but I never wanted to compete up against that. You know, I would have always felt bad. I, I at one point in my life, not recently, but I would have really enjoyed having a a President's 100, actually called President's 100 tab. But um, you know, I really didn't want to shoot against these these people. I really didn't. I really didn't like being around them. I didn't really. Uh, I just kind of thought that. Hey, they, they're getting something for free, and, and the rest of us don't even get crumbs. There was nothing for the rest of us. And I was active duty military at the time. So my duty always came first. And so there were a lot of things I couldn't do. I couldn't get the leg points for a distinguished badge because I couldn't participate in enough tournaments because, hey, I had a military job, and sometimes I had to be other places and do other things and uh, made it really hard and, and therefore I, I abandoned it I abandoned high power some time ago tried to get back into it a few years ago but the game had changed so much I never did it so anyway that's uh, that's the long rambly thing there um, we can now get into what is my favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers oh and the first question comes what sort of shooting garments or uniforms do you find the best and the answer to that is um, depends what I'm doing actually but what I find the best is there's a lot of good surplus clothing that that actually works out pretty well I'm not a shoot in t-shirt and shorts kind of guy um, I'm just not I don't like getting eaten up by bugs I don't like um, getting sunburn. I don't really like short sleeve shirts. 
in a lot of a lot of instances. So I, I tend to go with with stuff that kind of covers me, and it might be a little hotter, but but I find it. You know, if if I just had to choose one all around uniform, it's the old and and you can get these on Amazon and and there are companies that still still make them, the old Vietnam jungle fatigues, the OG 107s, you know, the slant pockets, and all that. That's the best uniform there is. It's lightweight, it breathes, it covers you, it's durable, um, it's good uniform. So that's what I that's what I think is the best. Um. There's a lot of stuff, surplus stuff out there that's really good. You know, you can get British stuff. You can get depending on what environment you're in. If you wanna, if you wanna kind of be deserty or be woodsy, um, I, I don't buy a lot of that stuff. But when I do, I tend to like Varus Daleka, the one that, um, well, they're big into in-range TV with the brutality matches and all that. But uh, I tend to find that their things are reasonably priced. They are as advertised, and if you can figure out the sizing, they're they're pretty good. So, I I tend to like that. I tend to like that kind of military stuff. One of the things I am experimenting with, because I now go to this uh, rural country property uh, quite a bit, is I'm just experimenting with ordinary coveralls. You know, you can buy them from Amazon for like thirty bucks, and it's like mechanics type coveralls, but they're comparatively lightweight and they're they're not the best for the dog days of august but in you know three season they're they're pretty good and you can you can wear things under them that'll keep you warm you can wear things over them that'll keep you warm uh you could wear just a t-shirt and shorts underneath them when it's uh getting warmer and in the absolute horrible heat you can you could probably use them that way too but but um, they're not going to breathe nearly as well but i like that and here's why I like them. Um, when you're out traipsing around, you know, keep your boots bloused. You know, that's a pant leg stuck in the top of your boots so the little creatures can't walk up your boot and walk up your leg. Uh, keep, your, keep your pants bloused. And since these are kind of a big onesie, um, there's not a space between your shirt and your belt where ticks and all this other stuff can get in. It, it'll keep, keep a lot of stuff out away from you. If you treat it with permethrin, any of the permethrin-based products, um, that'll keep the ticks and fleas and all those other bad things that are out in the in the summer and and the spring, summer, and fall. It'll keep all those off you. Uh, you can get them in some reasonable tactical colors. Uh, you can get them in navy blue if you want, uh, hunter green and khaki. And you know you can if you if you have them in green. Or khaki you can you know get a little they won't look very high speed but you can get some paint and you can you can turn into some sort of camouflage pattern on them if you want I don't know that you need to do that but um, you know hey it's it works out it works out um, I'm actually working on a design for my own I don't know if I'll ever make it but it, it would uh, it would have the kind of slant pockets like you see on the old OG 107s or the old m42 jump uniform it also would have something that coveralls don't have which would be you know the cargo pockets you know you could you can jazz it up a lot of guys have, have jazzed up uniforms you can put additional pockets on the sleeves and things whatever whatever you want to do um and we'll see how that see how that goes you know but that's that's what i use 
I believe you should have something like that or a good surplus uniform or good just good durable clothing good and, and a lot of that hunting clothing is really good stuff too you need good gloves and you need broken in boots and good socks if you don't have those things you will be miserable you will be totally miserable and since I was an infantryman I can tell you that boots and socks are super 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 important super important so definitely don't uh, um, don't go to Walmart and buy boots because you will get some kind of Frankenstein Chinese made Frankenstein boots that you will be very very unhappy with okay go and buy really good boots they don't have to be military boots Although military boots can be an option, and Varus Deleka sells new and used ones, um, they can be a very good option. But you don't have to have military boots. Get a good set of boots, good quality boots. And break them in. You have to break them in, and you have to have a good sock. You have to have those things. Um, there's no substitute for it because once you get like blisters, or your feet get torn up, or they're all sore and, and all that, you're out. You're out. You can't. You can't do one of the three main things you have to do. Move, shoot, and communicate. If you can't move, you're not going to be very very much value. You're not going to have a good time hunting. You're not going to defend yourself very well. You're, not, you're going to be miserable. Um, so you have to have good footwear. Okay, and this is an easy one because I've already answered it. What is the use for a retro style AR? That came up, that came up this week somebody just asked me that I was, I was talking about them and they asked me that and, and the answer is very simple the retro style AR is something that we now appreciate we did not appreciate them in the 60s 70s or 80s because we as a gun culture believed a lot of the Vietnam nonsense we also didn't understand what that rifle was designed to do and the fact that it really didn't do what its predecessors had did, the M14 and the M1, which is shoot the national match course well, since it didn't really do that, we didn't. There, there wasn't a lot of people who saw value in the retro AR. But now that we understand what it's supposed to do, what an intermediate cartridge is supposed to do, and why it is so good, um, we can now appreciate and get the benefits of its really decades ahead of its time design. And that is, it's got great iron sights, it's lightweight, it's exceptionally reliable, and the only thing it doesn't have that, that people look for today is an adjustable buttstock. So if you're wearing body armor or a whole bunch of other things, you may find that it's, it's not, it's not uh, as flexible as an M4 style stock, but it's still darn good. It's still super good. So that's the that's the use it, it basically has a lot of attributes and you know it's no secret kind of I don't think very much of the um, what would stoner do guns but it's very interesting to me that they're closer in concept and execution to a retro AR than they are to a modern M4 they're, they really are they really are so anyway that's what I think Oh, next question. And this is this is a difficult one. Do you have opinions on body armor? I have an opinion on body armor. I hate it. I hate wearing it. But I realize it's a necessity for a lot of things. And uh, 
I also realize that, you know, for the average civilian, when you need body armor, you probably won't have it on. There just won't be the opportunity, unless you walk around in it all the time, which doesn't seem likely to happen to me. But even if you are able to do the high threat, during high threat times, put that stuff on, I think that there's some some things that you should know. Number one is, um, it is protection, but it does limit you, and it limits your mobility. It wears you out faster, unless you're in super good shape. It's going to wear you out faster. And, uh, you know, it's depending on how you get it, it's going to protect you. There are a lot of people who I see run around and they're in a, these plate carriers and it's got one plate in the front, one plate in the back and they're running around like they're superheroes. Well, there's a lot of exposed parts of your body that can that can get shot that are not covered by that plate. That plate kind of covers the vitals. That's it. Then there's the stuff that's more encapsulating that's got side plates and maybe Kevlar collar and sometimes even have the the Kevlar sleeves and all that. Uh, those things, those things are going to limit your mobility, if, especially if you're using steel plates, which are heavy. The ceramic plates are lighter, but a lot of people just aren't going to wear that um, all the time. And and so, I do have opinions on body armor. If if you want it and you think you need it and you think you you know how you're going to use it then I would definitely get it. If it's just more stuff that's going to be sitting in a closet or a basement or in the back of a truck and just ride around all the time and give you this this uh, feeling of goodness that you have body armor, then, then you might want to just take a look and, and examine it further. Who have you heard the horror stories about the RTI Ethiopian guns? Yeah, I've seen them, and I've seen a few of the YouTube things and all that. And you know, I mean, <laughs> I know some of the carbines that came in were were nice, and and the nice part was they appeared to be unaltered; they were original World War II condition. So that was very cool. You know, a cache like that is a lot like the Nepal cache that came in 15 years ago or whenever it was. Um, you know, a lot of that is for collectors and military buffs and not really for hardcore shooters. And collectors and military buffs will generally accept a worse condition rifle as acceptable because they like it for the history. They like it because it fills a hole in their con uh, collection. And face it, um, you know, I will I will sit here and tell you, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of rare rifles that have come out of there. You know, or scarce rifles, however you want to phrase it. And so, if you want one of these things, um, you know, if you want the the you know Russian Kropatchek rifle with the Cyrillic writing on it, I'd love to have one. Um, that's a place to get it. And I mean, yeah, is is it going to have a pristine bore? No. Is it even going to have all of its parts? Well, maybe not. But at least it's it's there. At least it's there and buy and and you can buy it, as opposed to just having nothing. Uh, hardcore usually shooters, and and you saw this with the CMP. They're usually a lot harsher. I can remember, 
guys, and this was back in the days of the four hundred dollar um, CMP M ones, and they would be furious if the if the gun was not unissued or look unissued. I mean, they would just be furious. And it's like, dude, what do you expect? These guns were turned in, arsenaled, and then you know put into storage. These were never taken from the assembly line and and just put away until you know they would wait long enough to sell it to you i mean and people just a lot of guys didn't get that and they were furious and they were talking about they were junk the parts were they were that's where the term mix master you know oh it's a mix master it's got all these different parts i'm like oh dude you know just grow up just grow up pay your money get your m1 and and enjoy it if you're gonna just get on the internet and complain about it you know, why even spend the money? You know, go go collect baseball cards or something. So anyway, that's the uh, that's the deal. Those Ethiopian guns are really targeted to a lot towards collectors. I think that's going to be the market for them. People who want a Carcano. Why? Sometimes I don't know. But you know, a few of them did come in nice. But I'm sure it's a broad spectrum, and I think the uh, the spectrum is weighted on the heavy end of the guns aren't in that good a shape. They're just not. Um, you know, we're talking about Ethiopia here. It's not like they were stored in Ukraine or Belarus or or someplace where even the communist system is is going to take care of them because they they realize they might use them in the future. These were Ethiopians who probably stored them in rotty containers and and uh, didn't take any care to to uh, prep them for storage or anything else. So that's that's what you get, you know. That's that's what's out there. And I think there'll be some other caches of guns out there. I mean, you know, take a place like Venezuela. They've they've got some they've got some guns, and we haven't been trading with them for a long time. Probably the biggest, in my mind, the next surplus rush, if there is one, will be when, when Cuba finally gets rid of its clunky government and they become this sort of democracy and they're going to say, hey, we'd like to have some, some good old U.S. greenbacks down here. Yeah, we got we got warehouses full of these old clunky guns. We'll sell these to the we'll sell these to the Americans and uh, you know collect the cash. I think that is a big possibility, big big possibility. But it it may be, it may not even be in my lifetime. It may be another ten or twenty or thirty years. So we'll see. So we'll see. Okay, here's another one. Would Old West lever guns have been useful for the army in the Indian Wars period? To that question, I have to answer, and this is in complete opposition to the stuff that's been put out on in-range TV and everywhere else. I have to say no. And, and people want to talk about, well, they, you know, there was the battle where the Turks... Um, used them against the Russians and surprised them and blah, 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 blah. You know, that, that's all true. And for maybe cavalry, you could, make a, you could make a reasonable argument. But the fact of the matter is, during the part of the American frontier, during that time frame, when the Indians were a real problem, um, the only guns, the only 
quote modern lever guns out there were 73 Winchesters you know the 76 wasn't very good um, and it really wasn't until the 188 by 1886 yeah, the Indians were pretty much they'd pretty much had it and they were rounded up they were put on reservations occasionally they'd break out and you know they had the ghost dancing and wounded knee in the early 1890s but but you know the the 1870s that's when the Indians were kind of at their the height of their power and um, you know the fact of the matter is um, lever guns in those days the 73 just was it was a pistol caliber carbine and unless your cavalry uh, the infantry would have had no real use for that and uh, they didn't plus they had to uh, and I've said this before plus they had to be prepared to fight a continental army either you know it was unlikely but Canada or Mexico might have to fight them again in which case you're not gonna fight them with lever action guns you're gonna need a standard infantry rifle that can reach out maybe two or three hundred yards with power you know and so that's the uh, that's the deal there the lever gun never would have been never would have been issued it never would have survived troop trials just dent the magazine and it's at basically out of action so uh, and given the far-flung army posts you know hey I've got 20 broken rifles here well who and how are they gonna get fixed and the answer is nobody's gonna know because they wanted solid dependable guns the other the other thing is they weren't going to buy anything the reason they used the trapdoor system was because the government owned it they didn't have to pay any royalties they didn't you know they weren't going to go buy guns from Winchester they were going to make their own they were going to use their own system and it basically worked it, it basically was sufficient is it is it the uh, most elegant solution no is it is it the thing that uh, the most high-speed thing you could get well no I mean I think 1886 Winchester and 4570 would have been would have been a lot nicer to have as an individual than a than a single shot trapdoor but you know the army was an institution and they make decisions that benefit the institution and maybe not select individuals in it um, so there you there you are the, the lever gun when they, when they fantasize about lever guns being used by the army or the cavalry it's just not going to it just could not have the reason it did not happen was because it could not happen because it did not make sense the arguments they make were probably understood at the time but when you take the totality of the arguments for pro and con it just didn't make sense to try to use them all right here's another question this is this is one of those what ifs so this is pure speculation if Germany won World War II, how long would the STG-44 been in service before it was replaced? It's an interesting question in some ways. Um, the problem is the STG-44, 43-44, it came out when Germany was essentially losing the war. They weren't, they weren't done yet, but the writing was on the wall that they were, they were essentially finished. So you would have had to, in order to have them win the war, there would have had to have been something really massive. Like um, all of a sudden they, like they introduce, introduced the um, 
ME-262 two years earlier and they wipe out all the Allied bombers. Um, and therefore, you know, all of a sudden Germany has air superiority. Therefore, the war doesn't drastically turn against them in 1944. Um, the Normandy landings, the Normandy landings fail because the Germans have rudimentary atomic devices and they basically blow up the landings on D-Day and then they go and they blow up, they just blow holes in the Eastern Front, um, destroying the Soviet army in pieces, you know. So, so all of a sudden then the Allies know they're, they're not going to get on the continent and they know the Russians are, are finished. So, you know, it would, it would have taken something like that, in which case the STG-44, I assume, would have, would have become the standard infantry arm uh, through the end of the war and into the peacetime, because obviously <laughs> Germans aren't going to have a lot of friends after the war. Um, so while they're occupying Europe, they're going to use, they're still going to have a need for high firepower weapons. The Mauser 98 goes away. The STG-44 takes its place, and if the regime survives um, into the 1960s or 70s or 80s, I would and beyond, I would say it, would, it really probably would have been replaced in the 1960s. I think it was a good 20 year. The design was ahead of its time enough, so it would have lasted 20 years, and then something, you know, H and K would have whatever the the uh, the post-war H&K type deal, all that research they were doing um, would have continued at the end of the war, would have continued, and it would have would have brought out HK-style weapons. And so, you know, I don't know. It'd be something like that. But the STG-44 would have, it would have lasted probably 20 years and then been then been gone. So that's, that's what I'd think of that. Um, you know, it's very interesting. It, Germany could have won the war with, you know, even rudimentary atomic devices um, might have made a big difference, especially when you're on the defensive. You just park one of those things and wait for people to get up close to it and then blow it. You know, if the Atlantic Wall had had, you know, on the beaches, uh, nuclear weapons and basically when you see the landing craft coming, you wait for them to land and get off and then you blow the things. That's uh, that's really just yeah. It's it's amazing to contemplate things like that. So, yeah, it's it could have happened. Fortunately, it did not. Okay, here's another question: Would the 38 Super Thompson had any advantages over the 45 caliber Thompson? I have to say no. I'd have to say that had the Thompson. Let's just say that it just never came out in 45 ACP. Comes out in 38. Comes out in 38 ACP and then is adapted for 38 Super. Uh, I think it would have been a. It, it certainly would have been done by the mid to late 1930s, and it never would have gotten military use. Number one, because it had an odd cal, a non-military caliber. Number two, because it would not have been seen as being that much better than a 9mm Parabellum submachine gun. But you have all the debits of a Thompson, meaning it's expensive, it's heavy, um, it's kind of old school because it's all walnut and steel and it's not stamping. It's, you know, it's not stampings, it's all forgings, it's not stampings. And it's got the wooden buttstocks and all those things that 
that really uh, were not popular in World War II. So they were hard to make and hard to get stuff and you know resource intensive so no it would have been it would have been an abject not a failure in it maybe but it would not have been nearly what it was part of the magic of the thompson was hey it launched a powerful powerful round um didn't penetrate as much as nine millimeter but it would knock things over um so very very uh interesting because there are some 38 super thompsons allegedly the fbi had some and some were certainly made experimentally and uh it, you know i don't think anybody's ever done a long barrel velocity test of 38 super ammunition what does it look like coming out of a 10 or 12 inch barrel you know nobody nobody's really uh figured that out maybe maybe it would have been something that uh was more powerful than nine millimeter but i assume that that probably would not nine millimeter had the adequate power and why would you invest in something that's more powerful when you don't need more powerful so that's that's what i would think um and i don't really know you might be able to get 100 round drums that they were only a little bit bigger than the 50 round drums but the military didn't like drums anyway so you know it's uh it's one of those they did make some uh they did make some 10 millimeter semi-automatic Thompsons in the 80s, 80s or 90s, and they were very, very cool. I mean, uh, I think, I think those were very, very cool. You know, if you've got a semi-automatic, the 10 millimeter is a very cool um, cartridge. And you know, as I'm thinking about it, as I'm thinking my way through this, the the weight and heft of a Thompson would definitely would definitely help in controlling that recoil. So that and a ten millimeter coming out of a ten and a half, eleven inch barrel, yeah, that that would have been pretty cool. Full auto, I don't know. It might have been might have been a little hard to control, but um, definitely semi auto would be pretty squared away. All right, another question. I went to the Pershing birthplace in Missouri, the birthplace of General John J. Pershing. And one of the exhibits said that he was the one who recommended the development of a 45 caliber pistol, which became the 1911. Is this true? Uh, I, ha I have no idea. I, I have no idea because I've never seen any, I've never seen anything authored by him and I've never seen anything referenced that he sent a message saying we need a semi-automatic 45 caliber pistol um i would think he might have sent in a request because he was down in mindanao and he was fighting the moros and there were the ones who were getting all doped up and the 38 long colt everybody knew wasn't stopping them regular people it'll stop but with the people who were high on an anesthetic where they can't really feel the pain it just wasn't doing the job so he might have put in a request for 45 caliber pistols whether he put whether it was detailed enough for him to say we need develop to develop a semi-automatic pistol so we can gun these moros down when they're charging us i i don't know but it's an interesting question and it's interesting that they would attribute that to him i would think that he just requested 45 caliber pistols because what they received 
were actually old Colt peacemakers that had been um, had the barrel shortened to five and a half inches and were in 45 Colt. So I would assume that if he wanted a semi-automatic, he would have said, hey, stop sending me these antiques and send me the, send me what I asked you for. But anyway, I, I do not actually know that. Okay, here is our last question. Which do you think is better? The And which one would you like to use? I threw that in because that, that's how the conversation developed. Is the M16A1 better than the AK-74? And I'd have to say I, I like them both. Um, the only deal breaker in between them is the uh, there's there's two there's two aspects. The AK does not have a bolt hold open, so I don't. That's a deal breaker for me. But you know, hey, if I had to use it, I had to use it. That's that's no problem. Um, but I prefer a bolt hold open because it makes magazine changes a lot faster. The other thing is the uh, M16A1 has better sights. And, you know, measurably, but not tremendously better ergonomics. Yeah, the little, the, the safety lever is easy to get at. And it's easy to change magazines. I don't really care. I've never cared for the, uh, um, the bolt handle on the M16A1 at the, at the rear of the receiver and pulling it back. I've never really liked that. And in fact, I, I got the on my Brownells Proto AR, it's got the trigger type that's on the top of the receiver. I actually prefer that a lot better. Um, I really like that. I think that is so much more, so much more cool. But I can understand why the military didn't like that. Two reasons. Um, number one, if you're doing it with gloves or mittens, it's impossible to charge your rifle. And number two, you it it takes away that uh, ability to mount an optical sight on it because uh, you can't can't just drill a hole through the carry handle and uh, you know put some mount something on there because that uh, little trigger mechanism has to the has to move back and forth so it's going to interfere with that so I can understand why they they went away from that but uh, but frankly I I like it a lot better so that's that and this is it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And again, if you'd like to send us a comment, it's kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave it for us in the comments section on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.